Welcome to the Globe Screen Podcast. Globe Screen is an international events company operating festivals and conferences for the entertainment industry in the US, UK, and France. Find us on Twitter at Globe Screen C-O-N-F. Our podcasts are not business as usual. Monthly guests are true artisans of the industry and responsible or involved in key creative departments, cinematography, editing, production design, casting, and VFX. The art and science behind movies is the footprint we intend to leave the listeners of each podcast. Episode one, we had the pleasure of chatting with LA-based cinematographer Alonso Homs whose wide-ranging credits include DPing on many films and working in the camera department of movies such as Blue Valentine and The Great Gatsby. Please enjoy. We'd like to welcome Alonso Alms to the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Alonso. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work in uh, the film and TV industry. Absolutely. Well, I'm from Mexico originally. I moved to New York uh, in 2004 to go to film school. And I went to the School of Visual Arts there. I had, you know, I was born and raised in Mexico. I lived in London for a year, um, but I I realized I wanted to go to film school in New York. So that's why I went to the School of Visual Arts and I studied cinematography. They have a program that you can select between directing, cinematography, producing, and, or editing and producing. And I went for cinematography and it was a good choice. From the beginning, I knew that cinematography is what I wanted to focus on, although I knew that it probably wasn't going to happen as far as work went uh, without first getting like a technical job that I could start my career uh, with. So I did uh, four years of of that program, graduated, went very well. It, It was really exciting at the time and just being able to to do what I enjoy doing. And um, I had a teacher there for a production class. His name is Mark Peterson. And he co-owned a, a company that bought the first two red cameras ever. Wow. Uh, the name of the company is Of Hollywood. And they, they were like really forward thinking. Um, this was, I graduated in 2008. So it was at a time where digital wasn't, it, we knew that it was coming, but like the red camera was seen as this like crazy marketing thing that you know it was never going to happen right like steven soderbergh was shooting on the red camera but it wasn't automatically the norm you know exactly absolutely yeah soderbergh was one of the first ones um peter jackson shot something with it back then as well um but yeah new york were one of the few companies who who you know knew how to use it very well it was really hard in the beginning you know you had to change the firmware every couple days and um, they would, you'd really needed to be in the know to, to really have a, a stressless, you know, shoot. So anyway, so I became a, right. a technician with them. We called it red tech, red camera tech. Although for the union, it was a DIT, a digital imaging technician was the position. And it was a really lucky time for me. It was great because I just happened to go in right in the kind of perfect timing they needed technicians. I um I just I was out of school, and um and it was a great time because, especially, there were some projects where they wanted to, they needed the 4K whether it was for like VFX purposes or I remember doing I worked on this documentary, Scorsese docu- uh, directed, uh, called Public Speaking, and he wanted to do these long interviews like, two hour interviews without cutting. And so somebody said, hey, you should shoot on the red camera. You, you can put hard drives on it and shoot forever. And so we did overnight, you know. And that was just like one of the first few projects I did um, as a professional. And like you can only imagine how exciting that was to work with yeah, Scorsese and um, people he's, at that level. He's uh, and, my favorite filmmaker. Really? Yeah. I've seen that documentary as well. It's about Fran Leibovitz, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fran Leibovitz, exactly. Um so, yeah, so it was really exciting time. Um, I got to work with Doug Lyman. Um, I got to work with uh, eventually Bas Lerman a couple of years later. But in general, it was just like a great springboard for me to just jump into my, my career. And so I was a digital imaging technician for about, 
um, five years or so. It the last couple of years of that, I started getting into 3D. So I became a stereographer. So that same company of Hollywood got the first. There were probably one of the the first uh, company in New York to buy to buy these um, 3D rigs uh, from Element Technica. I don't know if you're familiar with Element Technica, but they started making accessories for the red camera and eventually they got into 3d and stuff then they got bought out and but um anyway so we had these 3d rigs kind of laying around um there were going to be a couple movies that were going to come to new york and i was always uh, had a technical mind but really creatively i felt like that's that's where i wanted to to be and um stereography kind of allowed me that and I could see it back then already. Well, it's going to be a technical job because they're, you know, you need to know how to align the rig and a lot of the science behind what is good 3D or and healthy 3D. But also, how do you help directors and cinematographers who've been working on a different medium for their whole lives, and how do you kind of help them in the process of of using this new medium? So it was really exciting. Um, so I started uh, doing stereography and, and in the beginning it was like fashion films and we did some stuff for the Discovery Channel because they were doing a lot of content in 3D back then. And um, yeah, it was also really exciting. And that's how I eventually got to meet Baz Luhrmann because he knew he wanted to shoot The Great Gatsby in 3D and he had met with some people in LA, but uh, he was in New York. So uh, somebody recommended him to of Hollywood and, and we did a, a test shoot there. This must have been 2011, maybe 2010, I forget. But anyways, we did this did this test and they went amazing. We shot in this mansion, one of the scenes from the movie with Leo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire acting in it. And it was really, really an amazing experience. So I was um, the stereographer in the end, I ended up being the stereographer for the movie, which was a whole other incredible thing i was in australia for about uh, seven months or so i even got to go back and work on the depth um, the di so to speak kind of adjusting the 3d of it i think uh, that's pretty post. incredible that just a couple of years out of film school you're working with directors of that caliber like scorsese and baz lerman and doug lyman those are you know some pretty heavy hitting names there Absolutely. I couldn't believe it. There was something about it. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. And and because I I was pretty from the beginning from film school, I was really into older films, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and so, you know, if, if I knew a lot, a couple of them. I mean, Scorsese obviously had been doing films since then, but um, Doug Lyman and Beth Lerman hadn't. So it wasn't necessarily my wheelhouse i knew how important they were of course and i knew their movies and and loved their movies but there was something about it i just couldn't believe it it, it just felt like i i didn't almost belong there you know it was so so crazy to watch them work because they were so for in my mind they were so successful yeah and and i just thought they would be either kind of mean or very specific about their process in certain ways and and i just found them to be like very focused very humble very nice people who just knew what they wanted and they had an amazing crew around them and and in a way kind of simplified filmmaking to me like i realized once you um take the ego out of it when you can um, it can be a really special thing so yeah so that's that was my the first few years of my career so that was really really crazy that's amazing um and then um so that was diting and being a stereographer then i started shooting here and there again i had gone to school for cinematography so i went back to new york after being in australia for a couple of years and i started my own production company with a couple of partners and we were just gonna do commercial stuff like in my mind i i i knew that i had to get into the creative side of things even further uh, it was a bit of a risk because I knew that I was coming from these huge projects to just producing my own little things and um, it'd be challenging, but, but uh, we also got lucky. We, we, um, we we're really working really hard to get some clients and stuff. And in the end, it was doing really well. We were doing mostly branded content. It was when branded content started. Yeah. 
um, kind of as native advertising, um, 2013 or 14. And, um, and yeah, that's why I switched to the production company and I started shooting. I, I just essentially started hiring myself. I would co-produce all these commercials and whatever, and I would just hire myself. Nice. And, uh, and it went, went well, I think in the end it was, it was a good move. It, it felt like taking a couple of steps back because of the scale of the projects, but I was also always very scared of getting stuck in a technical job that I didn't enjoy as much, you know? Well, I think that's what's interesting about looking at your IMDb resume, um, that it's not just, you know, just cinematography or you've had an eclectic sort of background in working in different facets of film. I saw that you even worked on the movie Half Nelson that came out in the mid 2000s. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was it. As an film. art intern, yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> it, 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 I find that it helps so much, you know, to um, to just do as many jobs as you can. You understand, like, Half Nelson was that movie. Um, I don't know if you, for those who haven't seen it, it's it's about uh, a teacher in Brooklyn, um, and was it was a like Ryan Gosling's abuse. first big role, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, he had started doing some roles. He did the movie The Believer that he starred in, mm -hmm. and that. But it was yeah, it was definitely when he was starting to make a name for himself. I right, think he was doing like right. the, the United States of Leland. Like he was definitely starting to progress. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. So, anyways, it was a it was a small indie, but it had a budget, of course. You know. Um, we were in the school for all these weeks and all this stuff. And yeah, so I was just the art intern. I was painting walls and um, making banners and all this stuff. And um, until uh, this day, I still, anytime I'm working with the art department or like just to be able to understand uh, what their day to day is and all that is so helpful to, you know, work better with people. Oh, so yeah, yeah. It, it was it, I kind of done a, a bit of everything. And, and that's really helped me, I think. And even James Cameron, I'm not sure if you're aware, he started off as the art department on Roger Corman B-movies. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And he wow. started to make a name for himself because he really just threw himself so hard into the work that he ended up becoming the production designer of one of the projects. And somebody was like, hey, maybe this guy could direct a movie. They had him directing a movie called Piranha 2, which was nice. sort of botched from the beginning because I guess it was a an Italian film director that really wanted to take over the project. He just needed an American name, but he had like a bad reputation and he would kick people off the, <laughs> the project and sort of hijack it. Um, and then that's how he got his start kind of. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah I mean that, 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 I guess it makes sense. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people, a lot of good directors started as editors. I think that I find that one, uh, one of the best paths for, for really good directors um yeah it is just so helpful yeah my background How about you? Is, my background Tell me about you my background isn't as an editor actually i started off as an editor and 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 i agree that it, it's really helpful for directing because i found that my background as an editor really helped me understand well what, what's the end result supposed to look like you know if you could sort mm -hmm. of edit in your mind a little bit that definitely is a leg up in terms of what you need to get on the day of shooting you know, and then totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that has happened to me as well. As I um, had my production company, I started producing, like I said, um, as well. And that meant just taking it. It was a bit of a, um, a process to to go from like a crew member who only would think about the day to day um, in a production sense to really think big picture and to think of um, how the every decision you know makes such a difference and stuff like that where I, I started shooting differently you know and I started um, kind of scheduling my time while we were shooting um, in a so much smarter way because um, I, I could see it all from afar you know I could yeah. have more perspective and that's something that has helped me so much it's so easy to get stressed in like the the, the little details of the day yeah, and the moment. And then ultimately, you know, none of that matters two months later when you're editing. That's so true. Um, and and I was just going to ask you about that, about, I think that's so cool that, that as a cinematographer, you also have producing experience because 
then it, it gives you a better understanding of just like, like you mentioned, scheduling and, you know, how many shots you might need to actually cover in a day. And, you know, instead of, Hey, we're just spending three, four hours lighting this one shot and then forgetting everything else on the shot list. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was, I guess, another thing that I learned from Mark Peterson, um, who owned that company of Hollywood, um, because he was all about using the latest technology, the one that feels like it's going to break any moment or it might not work, but like it, this, whatever, you know, product just came out and will, it allows us to, to do whatever thing. So he would be all about using new technology, but also f finding um, like having a crew that would modify, you know, um, depending on what we were shooting and like would wear multiple hats and all about efficiency. And um, I learned a lot that way too, of like, how do you, even when you have less money and, and lower budget, how do you still use the tools that you need that will make it all easier? Um, and, and still, you know, not be wasting money in other places. So, right. Effic yeah. Efficiency is so important, especially on independent films. And I mean, I guess every, like even, even studio films, you know, everything is time is, you know how it is. It's a race against time when you're on set. Exactly. So I mm -hmm. guess, uh, what do you, what are you currently working on? What are you currently shooting? Yeah, good question. Um, so this, I mean, this year has been, so crazy for for all of us, but um, it was a slow. Literally spring. everyone in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was a lot about not shooting and more, you know, kind of reconnecting with uh, movies and TV shows and that I loved for some inspiration. But then, um, and because I was doing commercials mostly last year and the year before, and I do these um, also branded content, digital stuff where we travel and, and we'll do like a small team, but we'll, you know, we'll do like um, nicer cameras and lenses and just less, a smaller crew, but kind of higher production value stuff. Um, and we get to travel and stuff. So I've been doing a lot of, a lot of that in the last year or two, but then this year I got connected with a friend of mine who was directing his first feature uh, for lifetime. Um, or I should say for Mar Vista is the, the, the studio producing it. And he hired me to, to DP and then I hadn't shot a feature in years in like seven years or so. So I was like, well, hell, you know, what am I doing? What, what else am I doing in this pandemic? Let's go to Oklahoma and shoot this movie. So, uh, but the, the, the schedule was crazy because they do these movies in like 12 days. Wow. You can imagine. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it's mostly one camera. We did two cameras for a few days, but, uh, and it was two movies back to back. So the producer was also going to direct uh, a movie right after that with a week in between. So we basically spent six weeks in Oklahoma and yeah, we shot these two features, um, and was really, really exciting for me because I mean, after being kind of stuck at home for so many months, uh, but also doing a lot of the commercial stuff in the past couple of years, you you get to you know use all the, the new toys and stuff like that but um of That's course really the cool. look and the vibe you know it's not always as um cinematic as of course a movie so yeah that was really exciting to, just to get back on on set in that way and to like get to work with the same group of people for multiple weeks and um it was really exciting so yeah those those are the genre is a thriller both of them um, which is fun for me too, because, you know, I get to play around with lighting and, um, color contrast, which is uh, big for me. And, sure. um, yeah, it, it was really, really exciting. That's and really and cool, we finished man. them, we, we finished them on time and somehow, and, um, it was also a great exercise in just lighting very fast. You know, when you're shooting like 10 pages a day, yeah. there's, you know, you, you have to be very strategic about how you light every scene because you won't really get it any time to tweak in between, you know? So, um, and kind of exercising that muscle and, and, and be really strategic with the lighting and, and also just letting, you know, some things go, especially that in commercials, you'd always want to light it so high key and, and to really get to let, you know, Oh, half of her face is just 
totally black, you know, and, and dark, and it works for the genre. But um, and also, you know, when you have too much time to um, to to work on something, like it happens in commercials all, all the time. I'm sure you have that experience as well, where you you can just really work a frame to death, and you yeah. start tweaking all the stuff that doesn't matter, and you're you, you actually start. Um, making it worse, you know. Right, I've seen that. You know, you're you're yeah. working on it too much, and now it's you know, 15 people chiming in, and is the cheese on the sandwich melted enough, and uh, is the steam like strong? You know, stuff that you know. Yeah. Just, you know, for people like us, it just doesn't matter as much if the creative um, is there, and that's really what's more important to me. Um, oh, so, so yeah, true, man. There's a point <laughs> of diminishing returns. Yeah. Yeah, about it this. is. It's such a crazy thing to to jiggle those two worlds how about you do you do mostly feature stuff or, or so, commercial stuff or so i i uh released my first feature film it's called the trouble it's 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 on amazon and that was that was nice. last year and we shot that super super low budget you know kind of guerrilla style and i i work i have a close collaboration with my cinematographer his name is alex gray and we, we nice. shoot actually a lot of projects together in general and we have a really close working relationship in terms of like if even if i'm not sleeping like i'll drive around so i don't wake up my wife and kids and then i'll call up alex and we'll have like a deeply technical conversation at like two <laughs> o'clock in the morning about you know like how we want our next film to look you know nice and so nice. you know so now it's exciting to have a good uh, collaborator is so important, isn't it? To the whole. Oh man, uh, it is so important. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. I always kind of longed for that, you know, in the early days of kind of getting started. Cause I really didn't know anybody and I didn't go to a traditional film school and, you know, I, I started a production company and it was at, at first was, you know, just kind of, I'd already finished college. So I have an unusual route to getting into the industry. Although I did actually was was always interested in film. And in fact, I also took classes at the School of Visual Arts when I was in high oh, school nice. on the weekends. I would take uh, um, directing courses and when I was in high school. That's awesome. But for whatever reason, I didn't pursue it immediately after high school. And I think the reason was actually because the 16 year old me, when I learned about how how much hard work filmmaking entails, I was actually the 16 year old me was daunted by it. I was like, oh, Okay, I love watching movies, but this is incredibly hard work. But then, of course, you get out into the real world, and I started my own business. I'm like, well, everything worth pursuing is really hard work, so you might as well right. gravitate toward the thing that you love to do. And so then that's why I ended up uh, back getting back into film. Nice. Yeah, That another thing that happened to me, I remember when I was young, was taking these directing classes and... And I just remember thinking, like, I, I don't have enough life experience to be, you know, writing and making these films about, you know, big life drama, you know, or whatever it might be. Just I haven't lived enough, you know, I haven't had enough experiences of my own. And, um, yeah, 15 years later, finally starting to brew like, OK, I've I've, you know. And I'll probably think the same thing in 20 years, 30 years, you know. Well, I'm actually happy you say, you say that, Alonso, because I think that's my only, sometimes when I beat myself up, I'm like, well, why didn't I immediately go to film school? Why did I wait till I was 27 to make my first short film? But then sometimes I also think I'm like, well, I guess the one advantage that I do have versus a kid that just finished NYU film school or something, I'm like, I did sort of taste life by the time I was 27. I really had a lot of experience in other ways, you know. There you go. And I, and I think it's so valuable. I mean, um, sometimes I think of like, oof, if if our industry did end up um, disappearing, like what what the hell would I do? I, I really know nothing else but but film, you know, um, I can cook here and there or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I would work at a restaurant. But when when your knowledge is so specific to this one industry, um yeah, and 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 it's it is very cool to talk to people who you know uh, who just had a different life at some point before their film career, and they um, I, I I find that often the best crew members yeah had you know valuable life experience before that, and so yeah, I think you did the right thing. I I almost I feel lucky that I've I've been able to do what I love to do, you know, my whole um, career, uh, but but I also 
sometimes uh, wish, yeah, I had a little more life experience in other places. So yeah, did you did you come from a family? Like I know you grew up in Mexico, and were, were, did you come from a family that was like into the arts or into you know? Yeah, interesting. Not really. I mean, I, my dad is a business man and my mom's a psychologist so neither of them are in the arts uh, my mom was being a psychologist she was always very open to me you know doing whatever i wanted and uh, she was interested as in like you know she 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 would we would watch french you know french films when i was young and it's not like she was watching only commercial stuff or she didn't care she 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 had an eye for it she just didn't do it um and nobody else in my family really nobody was in in the business so and that's something that i remember my dad telling me since i went to school like hey the only thing i know about the film business is you need to know somebody otherwise it's it's really hard to be successful yeah and so if you're gonna do this you're gonna do this alone and you're gonna have to like make your own path and uh and i said yeah I'll, i'll try it let's do it why not uh, but it was a hard decision for that alone, you know, sure. because for whatever reason, my dad knew that um, and really put that in my head. Uh, but yeah, then you just, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time and you work really hard and um, and, and put a lot of effort and connecting with people and establishing work relationships, it, it all does unravel. It is really fascinating for me to think back to the first jobs I got and, and, and how they all really come from the same branch of a relationship. Really most of the important stuff for me. Um, and, and really most people I've ever worked with branch out of film school, you know, yeah. even 15 years later, you know, a couple of people that I met through other jobs that I got through people through film school, you know? So yeah, it's, it's interesting how I can imagine for you going into an industry kind of blind and, uh, again, without the relationships and without the the um, the benefit of like graduating with a hundred other people, you know, it's true. I think I kind of doubled down on just joining different organizations. For instance, I became a member of the Bronx Filmmakers Collective at some point, oh, nice. which is a great group of you know hardworking filmmakers from from the Bronx. That also, you know, that's that's where I'm originally from, and nice. uh, an area traditionally where. It's, you know, very outside of Hollywood, you know, so it's 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 not like a, a lot of those filmmakers had some sort of underlying connections, but just a desire to tell stories, really. And, you know, then I was also just attending film festivals like I would go to I attended Sundance a couple of years just to watch movies. You know, I, I love movies. And then I found that, oh, like, well, attending film festivals, everybody's usually pretty friendly there, and pretty open about, you know just exchanging numbers or keeping in touch with each other. Right. So I started, I just started to make contacts by just trying to like go out there and, and meet people and like-minded people. And that actually I did partner up with a couple of other guys when I started my production company, Alphabet City Films. And one of them had went to NYU film school and uh, my producer partner, George Rudai, he went to the Brooklyn college of film. And in the early days, they used to sort of chew me out because they went to film school. They'd be like, oh, Zeph, this is like this and this is like that. And then I just became so into it, reading every sort of book imaginable, just really pushing myself. And then at, at a certain point, they were like, OK, you didn't need to go to film school. Like, you, you know, you even know more than us now. <laughs> right. So. No, nah, that's nice. That Yeah, it must have felt nice to be like, yeah. Got you guys. Yeah, it, it did feel good that at least they were giving me the kind of acknowledgement like, OK, you didn't you're good. You didn't have to, you know, go that route. And but I, but I so I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I think film school is great. Um, you know, if I could go back, of course, I would have went. Um, but I also think if you don't go, then, you know, just find other ways to supplement that knowledge and then just be even more more proactive about meeting people like-minded people and uh and then that's exactly right i think it's the key if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind you know um, socializing and, and networking independently from a school then then i think it's even better i mean because a lot of the valuable stuff you 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 learn it's either from movies or from working on set and you can watch movies you know any virtually any movie now for for very little 
and and working on said you can also if you start out as a pa or something you know you, you can really learn so much and save all that tuition money you know as long as you're willing to and able to kind of network outside of it yeah and actually um from attending the globe screen conferences funny enough i i started seeing different people that i even knew there including a guy named brian who was a member of the bronx filmmakers collective and you know and then i found that you know a lot of times when you're attending these sort of events and people people are pretty receptive to talking to each other they're there usually to meet people so um i mean i find more people that are kind of friendly enough to have a chat or a conversation with you respectfully about the craft, you know, versus people that are standoffish and don't want to be bothered. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's good. Hopefully uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track in the world, you know, having more in-person yeah. events and also actual theatrical screenings um, as well, because I think that's such a, an important part of our industry is that communal way of watching films themselves. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Isn't it crazy how I, while I was in Oklahoma, I got to go to the movies because I hadn't here in LA for since March. Sure. And I, you know, and I would go maybe once a week, you know, something like that. But yeah. So, and yeah, I, I, I got to go see Tenant. And, oh, uh, how was that? It was, it was exciting. Yeah, it, it was good. You know, some, I, I guess I really like some of his other movies better. I think it's, um, the science is quite complicated and, um, but visually, you know, they do some stuff that they do. He does so much uh, or they do so much, uh, practically that it's really, you can tell, you know, the, the lack of VFX in, in the best of ways. So that's what I admire about him. Yeah. I admire His that team, as well. Um, about the, the, the most. Things. Yeah. But, but yeah, you know, the movie's not necessarily my, my cup of tea, but the, but visually, yeah, really, really amazing. Uh, so, and just the experience of, you know, being in a theater again. I mean, you know, I went to one where they were trying to do social distancing, leaving every other row empty. And it was really only a handful of us in the theater, in this big theater. Um, but, ah, you know, I miss, I just miss going to the movies. I miss really it tough. as well. So I guess, you know, thinking about Christopher Nolan, who's been a very passionate proponent of shooting film on film itself versus digital what what's what's your view on the ongoing debate about shooting on film versus digital Oof, it's a complicated issue for me because it, while i was in film school the old like i was saying the movies of the 50s 60s 70s were so important to me and really most of my inspiration as i learned um, the the craft so with that came a lot of the kind of glorifying um, a lot of the people that worked back then and, and that, that are known to be like the, the cinematographers um, on film in particular, the, the, the masters, you know, Gordon Willis and Owen Roisman and Laszlo yeah. Kovacs and people all, like that. All legendary DPs. Yeah. And I, and I love their work and, and, and I would read about, you know, especially Gordon Willis's like experimentation in the lab and all that stuff was really fascinating for me. But then what really gave me my career was digital cameras. You know, the only reason why I, I've kind of made a, a career in it because of the red camera sounds crazy, you know, but um, maybe I, I'm sure I would have found a, another way out. And if I had, I worked on, on films that shot on film only, then I'd probably be saying the opposite thing. But, but in short, it's like, it's been the craziest revolution, you know, that that I've seen again because I graduated right as um, digital cinema started becoming a thing, where I've I've seen it develop to such levels that it's really unbelievable stuff. We you know we wouldn't have guessed even just 15 years ago of how good um, this cinema cameras um, digital cinema cameras look like now. Um, is it is it even difficult for you certain times to tell what's shot on film versus digital? Uh, I no, I think I could probably tell most of the time, but that's I think at the core of the argument for me. It's but like, you, I mean, well, like you're looking at more 
like you could tell most of the time, but you're looking at very now specific things like, oh, well, I could tell because of the grain pattern here right. is like that right. versus, right. you know, like an obvious, such an obvious difference. Right. I mean, it's gotten really to a point where, I mean, there's a couple different, a few instances in which, you know, film will really shine um, against digital. But for the most part, I think of it, I, I kind of think of it as like my, the grandmother test, you know, like if, um, and, and as that, I mean, anybody that's not in our business and um, which is like, would they really be able to tell the difference? Like you can shoot beautiful stuff on digital uh, unquestionably. Right. Um, so you don't need to shoot on film to shoot stuff that's beautiful, you, you know, and for the most part, the, the, the vast majority of population of the world, would they be able to tell the difference? Not really, you know, so what really matters, you know, is should I be so self-absorbed as a DP um, that I should really fight for this thing that it's such a niche thing that only people that do what I do can fully appreciate? I don't think so. I think film is for everybody, you know, and, and, and if it's going to mean, um, I don't know, allowing reallocating the budget in a different way and, and getting more for our department. Or again, this is kind of more my producer mind speaking, but uh, I think that the, the decisions that make film beautiful or imagery, you know, cinema beautiful uh, for the most part are not have, have anything to do with the actual format that you shoot. You know, you can shoot 16 millimeter or 35 or digital and really create amazing stuff Anyways, um, I agree. So, so, so that's kind of where I've landed. Like, I mean, would I love to shoot something, some experimental thing or some cool fashion thing on, on film in the desert? Yeah, I would love to. But, um, but for the most part, most of the projects I work on really makes most sense to shoot um, digital. And, 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 and I don't think we should be so, um, I, I really think we get lost in our, kind of in our heads and our process too much. Um, yeah. And that's when you, you can really dissect something to death and, 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 and you lose that perspective of what makes something good. It's typically the bigger uh, decisions. It's so um, true. You know, and, so and that's kind of where I am. That's, that's my thoughts as well. And I've been pretty vocal about that. I'm, I'm very pro digital in the, and I, and I love film. I love, I respect it immensely. And I, and I would love to direct a, a film like on, on film itself, you know, maybe even just for the sake of then actually feeling like a proper filmmaker. <laughs> um, right. However, I will say that one thing, one reason that I'm very pro digital is that I, I, I feel like it's democratized the filmmaking process in terms of making it more accessible for people that would just never have been able to get into filmmaking if it wasn't for that. And I could definitely speak for a lot of, the, the folks at the Bronx Filmmakers Collective, for instance, or, you know, even certain, like, you know, even certain sorts of people that are coming from, like, sort of working class backgrounds that they just would not have been able to afford shooting and developing on 35 millimeter film. Totally, exactly. I think, I know we were previously talking about The Florida Project as a movie that we both love, but I think, I don't know too much about Sean Baker, the, the director, but I, I know that he shot Tangerine on, on an iPhone. And in my mind, it's people like that that are I, um, uh, really can think so out of the box that they're going to bring new things to our, our industry and a creative and, you know, not, not so much on the technical end. But um, absolutely. Yeah. And he started off very sort of guerrilla style making, you know, films in New York City, like shot on, I think, like mini DV cameras and things like that and just kept like just kept going kept progressing and you know so i really admire right. him and uh i mentioned the other day when we we're talking i happen to have met him uh at an ifp event and very nice guy so it's always good to find that people whose work you admire are also just kind human beings so yeah that's nice that's so nice to hear it's so cool you got to meet him i think it's a, he's such a an admirable filmmaker speaking of the florida project i guess i want to find out like what, what sort of influences, like, I really want to like tap into like your cinematic influences, like, like who really inspired you to get into film and to become a cinematographer. I mean, you mentioned Gordon Willis, who was outstanding, shot the Godfather and Owen Roisman that shot 
the French Connection, if I'm not mistaken, which is yeah, exactly. one of my favorite yeah. films. Um, and exactly. Yeah. It's so for me, I, um, back in film school, those were the guys I was looking at the most. Yeah. Gordon Willis, Owen Roisman, Laszlo Kovacs. Um, I, in particular with, with, with lighting, I think my, my first attraction to cinematography was through lighting and um, less than camera. It's something that just for whatever reason came really natural to me. Um, and I saw these, it's, it's a kind of a hard thing to learn real, really fast. You know, we, we take all these lighting classes in film school. Um, and, and yeah, some people just could not, could not get it, you know, could not light a scene to, to save their lives. And, and, um, and yeah. yeah, I kind of noticed quickly, like, oh, for whatever reason, this comes easy to me. I can't, like, I can't draw to save my life. I can't, you know, paint it. There, there's stuff that anything with my hands, I'm, yeah, it's not like I'm making stuff where it, that doesn't really come easy, but for whatever reason, lighting did. Um, so I focused more on that. Yeah. What I really gravitated, gravitated towards was like, traditional but very high quality um lighting and camera positioning um so um but as time went on and as i've been you know working in the industry more and more i've i've kind of realized i just like very natural um lighting you know i've i've the the more i shoot the more i try to use less lights you know as much as i can to really I have a, a this Australian friend I worked with on The Great Gatsby who who I remember him telling on some scout like the American DPs will show up to the location for a scout and will be asking like figuring out with the gaffer where they're going to put the lights whereas like the European DPs would show, would show up to Australia um Asian DPs as well they would be thinking about really trying to understand how the light would develop throughout the day in that particular location you know that's and both are of course can get you great results um but that's something that how i've been adapting like i find beauty in 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 like specific lighting conditions that happen naturally um that you know it, it requires taking some risks um of course, if you're lighting with natural light and, and it's a, the kind of day with, with passing clouds and you have very little time, it's probably not going to work if, if it's going to keep getting so cloudy, funny, you know, stuff like that. But in general, um, yeah, it's it's more the natural lighting. And so the people in, mo you know, kind of recently cinematography that I particularly like are um, uh, movies like The Square. Uh, Ruben Oslund's, I don't know if I'm saying his that, name. That one, yeah, the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago. Yeah, of a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. same with The Lobster, uh, Yargos Lantimos. Yes, is, um, I've seen The Lobster. Films, like, they do a great job at um, present, presenting the world they're, they're creating in, like, a very elevated way, but it's, um, but the but the contrast isn't crazy, you know? It's all, they kind of let the, the light pouring from the windows and they especially um lantimos uses um longer lenses on on his on his wide shots you know they really love um and and as far as natural light goes of course uh chivo lubeski who me being mexican i have a particular kind of admiration for him um and he's also one although he of course uses like white lenses almost exclusively um, his understanding for the natural light, I think is the best out of anybody that I, as far as I understand. Um, and I'm guessing that you're a, a big fan of, or like you, you believe in motivated lighting. Yeah, exactly. Motivated lighting. And, and I am, I'm the kind of DP who's like thinking about coverage and um, is this really the, best possible place for the camera to be to tell the story or whatever the character is going through. Like I'm not, I'm not the kind of DP who is, um, is thinking of like the single frame. That's the coolest possible frame. Um, or is like, is going to get particularly excited to use this new lenses or like, 
what what really gets me excited is to work with the directors on set and 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 figuring out the best way to tell the story. I was listening to a podcast actually with uh, Caleb Deschanel He's the other day. Well. He did um, the movies that love us. Uh, that sorry, that movies that made us. Is that the name of it? Um, I think. But anyways, he was talking about, yeah, the, the, the DP really being like the director's right hand in most of his job. You know, the director's answering, he was saying like 10 million questions a day. The DP is maybe only asking a million questions a day. But still, so much of how you're going to capture and tell the story is where you're going to put the camera and the camera movement and, and the lighting. Um, and that's how I really like to... Um, to think um that's so important by the way man uh so i'm so happy to hear you say that because i think i don't want to say that's a lost art but i feel like that's something that was really understood by the those great dps that you mentioned of the past that it wasn't just about hey what's the coolest looking shot or what's what's going to look awesome for my demo reel it it was really about well how do we visually tell this story so it's the most impactful sort of that it's really serving the story the like cinematography tied into the story of the film itself it's, it's, yeah. to me that's what a great dp is not somebody that's like oh well i'm gonna i don't care if it's a good movie or bad movie i'm just gonna make it look great you know um, right yeah exactly that's why um i mean movies that i associate as being the most beautiful are not only most beautiful visually but they interconnect with what the director was trying to do like movies like manhattan to me you know one of the most beautiful uh, yeah, like it's very careful composition and, and, and Gordon, black and white Gordon, and the lighting really so shot that, right? stunning, huh? Was that Gordon Willis? Gordon Willis? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he did. I think seven or eight movies with Woody Allen. I think mo most of the ones I like in the seventies, in particular, with Gordon Willis, um, Annie Hall as well, and Interiors, which was like Woody Allen's kind of uh, homage to Bergman was really Bergman like, but, but really beautiful. So yeah, it, to me, it's like lighting faces and like really get in there and reading the characters uh, motivation or reaction to something or, yeah. or, or focusing on the right thing. Like that's really what's going to get me more excited. And, and yeah, so movies like that are example of that, like Manhattan and Annie Hall um, or there's so much about the people, you know, and, and who you're choosing to show what moment that's like, um, really the most important to me. So yeah, those are combination of um, influences. Um, yeah, I think um, the other thing I really love is musicals in general. This is something that I don't fully understand why, but um, I think when I was a teenager, it was the first movies that I, I remember watching Singing in the Rain, for example, when I was like 14 and watching it twice immediately. You know, uh, as soon as it finished, I just watched it again immediately because wow. I was just couldn't get my eyes off of it. It was so, um, and it was so Hollywood and so colorful and so large in scale, um, and and in a, such a different way from what I was seeing growing up in the '80s and '90s. Um, that I think I just associated that um, grandness, vastness with. Um, with with the musical so so then i got into jacques uh, demi who's this french director i don't know if you know but he did um, the umbrellas of Cherbourg, is maybe his most well-known film he did um the young girls of rushfort as well but he was trying in the 60s he was making musicals in french uh but with a big influence on hollywood musicals of the 30s 40s and 50s so uh he was He's not necessarily an influence to me because I haven't really gotten a chance to work on anything that is in that style. But he was, you know, all about color and same, like a very careful composition. He would do these crazy, especially in the umbrellas of Sherberg, this incredible wallpapers that were perfectly coordinated with the wardrobe and um, and just the way he would reveal the, you know, the third wall in the room, right as a different character that walked in with the right wardrobe that complemented that back wall, you know, just so visually uh, minded. And then at the same time, like a devastating story um, that just like, 
gave you uh, just really and impactful from kind of every direction. So that would be another big, again, not necessarily influence, but I guess some filmmaker that really excites me. That, um, yeah, you appreciate their work. Yeah, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How about you? Who are your? Well, I love I love so many films. I mean, guys, um, yeah, I love. Um, yeah, I I I love, you know, and I I really have. I mean, like I'm I'm a Scorsese fanatic. Um, I love a lot of French films from nice. you know the '60s, like you know Francois Truffaut, and you know uh, that sort of thing. Just from, I just love the fact that how they push the envelope, and you know films from the '70s. You know, I I it it's it's it really becomes hard to uh, narrow it down, but I I have such a deep respect for cinematography like you know that um so i i really respect what you as dps bring to the table and you know and so that's why i have such a close working relationship with my own cinematographer alex gray and you know because it really becomes we're having constant conversations of well what could we do to push the envelope in in our own storytelling ambitions you know and um so it's a constant sort of constant thing uh i, I would say my favorite film I, you know and i love stanley kubrick you know he's one of my favorite filmmakers absolutely. and he's somebody that certainly thought put a lot of thought into how his movies would look <laughs> yeah uh-huh. absolutely yeah i'd say 2001 space odyssey is probably um after all those musicals when i was a teenager that was another one that i remember watching and like couldn't stop thinking about I still barely understand it, you know. I've you know, twenty times. I but. I feel like I only understood it when I saw it on the big screen. Like I tried to watch it so many times. I remember watching in Earth Science when I was in the seventh grade. My teacher was like, "Oh, oh you guys got to watch this amazing movie called Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey." And I just remember the seventh grade me watching it on this little screen in science class, and I'm like what (laughs) just just totally checked out and until i then even again later on i'd watch tried watching it just couldn't really connect with it and then it wasn't until i saw it at the ifc center when they were doing like the 50 year anniversary a few years ago of, of the film where i saw it on a giant screen that i'm like wow this movie was so far ahead of its time it's incredible and i only fully appreciated the, like the the entire scope of the film from watching it on a screen that was much bigger than myself and just being totally immersed in the film. And I, I felt like I really sort of connected with everything that was going on. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so much stuff happening. You kind of need to see it all on the big screen to, to fully take it in. I, I I agree. That's, it's, yeah, maybe the, to me, I, I maybe that remains as like, the the, fi- the the film I'll always be shocked by and you know yeah yeah I, I was I was totally blown away with I was like yeah. wow Kubrick made this fifty years ago and it yeah. still looks amazing yeah when and I he will forever I mean that's yeah. that's the one thing about not the one thing one thing I forgot in that film conversation is like it is true that digital cameras have gotten so incredibly better um but they are still in particular as it comes to resolution like a a machine of their time you know i I think we'll get to a point maybe in a couple years where like you know we're shooting everything in 8k or whatever it might be and 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 we'll we'll be able to keep that as a standard for years to come but yeah there's just no uh, obviously nothing up until now has proven to to capture, uh, especially in a way that can be shown again and again, you know, um, at a scale that the film does, you know, that is something that I definitely would have been mad if he had shot that on digital <laughs> back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you That's know, true. you look at films shot on digital 15 years ago and you're like, oh, a bit of a shame. Cameras weren't quite there yet. And, I know what you mean. I, that's how I feel about Michael Mann's Public Enemy. I was like, right, I, well, I was right. like, why did he shoot that on digital? I was like, especially since it's a film about the 1930s, and I was like, it was so distracting to me that he shot that on 
digital. I mean, I feel less that way about Collateral uh, with Tom Cruise, right. and I, I, I'm a big fan of Michael Mann. I think he's like a really nice. great filmmaker. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, Collateral. I think he did because he wanted um, shoot a lot of nighttime uh, in LA. Didn't want to light the night exteriors right a lot, and he wanted like high sensitivity. Right. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's so noisy. And, I, yeah, that's true. You know what? I haven't seen Collateral in a number of years. I mean, I, I, lo- I love the film, but I want to. I want to see how I feel about the way it looks <laughs> today. It's today yeah. by today's standards, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was another thing that I I got lucky. I should have mentioned. I did have um, a teacher in school who was my mentor, uh, Chris Newman, who was a legendary sound mixer from. A lot of these films I've been mentioning, he, he was the sound mixer on The Exorcist and The Godfather and all the Godfather movies and English Patient and all this That's classics. Amazing. Yeah, incredible um, resume. And he, um, I kind of, um, I got a chance to, he was still working while we were in school. He did, one of the last films he worked on was Sidney Lumet's before the devil knows you're dead. Oh yeah, with uh, Ethan um, Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. good memory. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great film. Um, so oh, I got yeah, to. It's a great film. He was a. Yeah. So my mentor was the sound um, mixer on that, and he talked to the DP, see if I could come, be a guest on the movie, just watch the DP work for a week. Uh, the DP's name is Ron Fortunato, and he was another um, one that I, I I really only interacted with him that week, but. And I should have kept in touch. I'm the worst at that. But he was not only such a great guy, but um, really good. I remember back then, like he was making the best of video back in 2000. This must have been 2007, maybe. 2006, I think the movie came out. Yeah, yeah, maybe 2006. Um, And uh, yeah, he was was really making the best of it. I learned a lot about how to like... um, lighted and and because he was using um this gaffer he'd been working with for for decades who was like an old-fashioned um gaffer who had been working on on lament movies for for years and um yeah his focus was like how do i make this just look as much as like film as possible you know yeah um and yeah he did a great job and he had um a legendary DIT, one of the guys who'd like started the DIT role almost in a way in, in, in New York, who um, uh, un- explained to me a lot about how the digital cameras had evolved even from, you know, the mid 90s through um, the mid 2000s and, 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 and in what way and, and really explain like the role of the digital imaging technician who now if you work on any low budget anything they just call the dit the data manager you know who's really just right. downloading all the footage and backing it up and um and on big movies and and back then it was really such a the dit was such an important part of of the look of the film especially when you were baking in a lot of the look into um you know whatever you were filming if it was to tape or whatever else and um and they were really coloring before it got baked in and so it was it was like part of the lab you know right on set and um and now you know of course you can adjust stuff so much in post that um um the it's have become to a degree a little less um important but but uh yeah no Those but that's, guys were that's really fa- important to me that's fascinating to just understand that and you know I, for sure, that's it's something I've always also been interested in, just curious about of you know how DIT is run on you know such bigger productions because I know some people get very elaborate you know it, like like you said some it goes from as small as just literally backing everything up to then literally color grading on set and doing you know yeah it can be a great tool especially sometimes it's as you know like directors and producers that they they can really get used to the look of a film just from the dailies you know and the, so it depends how much work and effort you put into the the dailies like sometimes the biggest contribution now from the ats is um creating the lot files that will um, establish the look in the dailies and what they're cutting and and 
and that's the DP has a little more control then, you know, because it's, I think depending on the budget, but it's getting less, bit less rare that DPs are like in a full on sit down DI color session, you know, um, right. gotcha. that, that it's, yeah, it's good to kind of put it in there Although you know, you're shooting raw or, or whatever, but, but at least, you know, this is what you intended for it to look like, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm imagining that sometime at like at this point what what's done more often than not is they kind of do a like for lack of a better term a quick and dirty color grade right. and then it becomes more refined much later on in the process. Right, exactly. But at least stay within that world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess um, uh Alonso, tell us, you know, what's next on the agenda? What's uh what 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 else do you have going on? What's well, so there's two movies that I just did in um, August and, and part of September. Um, I guess we had such a great experience that they won me back for two more. So we're going nice. to go back to Oklahoma in late October through mid December. And we're going to shoot two more movies. So amazing. We'll, man. Yeah, it's really exciting. I, I really, the way 2020 was going, I didn't expect it to be a year where I would shoot uh, four features. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's wild. It's exhausting. Like I said, it's a lot of pages a day. And um, But I really, it's such a good exercise in just getting really fast about figuring out coverage like immediately how to, and how to compromise very quickly and how to, just make the very best decisions in the fastest amount of time. You know, I, the, the friends that I still have uh, that I have that work on those big, big movies and big TV shows, you know, especially the TV shows where they'll, you know, easily do 14, 15 hours a day and they'll go on for four or five months. Um, they have such grueling schedules and all they talk about is these, the DPs who, you know, will camera wrap and will be going straight into a, location scout or director scout, you know, at the same night. And they're, it feels like the, um, we're just getting used to these crazy schedules. And, 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 um, and again, because I work in the commercial world for most of the time, I kind of been spoiled by this illusion that you, you can shoot slower and stuff, but, but really the, the stuff that I enjoy doing the most, which is um, narrative stuff. Yeah, it's just become the norm that you have to go very fast. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, excited to be exercising that, and um, we're shooting those films on uh, Red Helium with Super Speeds, Zeiss Super Speeds nice. uh, Mark Threes, uh, which are it's a combination that I love. I like the high resolution of the helium, um, but the older lenses. So yeah, I'm excited to get back out there. Do Do you always strictly shoot on red? No, to tell you the truth, I've actually really 90% of what I've shot in the past five years has been on Alexa. Sorry, Alexa. Alexa yeah. Mini, you know, probably. I do a lot of um, movie stuff as well. Well, we'll, you know, we'll be on the movie for a couple hours in the morning and then we'll have all the bracket tree and stuff to go right on sticks and shoot some interviews. And for some of the unscripted commercial stuff I do. Nice. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, Alexa Mini has kind of been the workhorse for us in that sense. But for this one, yeah, knowing that it was film and, um, yeah, the producer, the director and I figured, hey, let's shoot it on AK and future proof it even further. And, um, and yeah, it's it's been kind of nice to go back to my basics again because I started with the red camera. I mean, it's not like I haven't touched a red camera in years, but um but yeah you just get used to the the um ari stuff i've i've done a few things on the sony venice which i also like but i i really only like using it if there's enough budget and time for a, a proper color you know session at the end of the project it, i think it renders amazing images but but uh it's not so quick out of the box like the Alexa Mini it just looks right. fantastic immediately. The color signs in the Sony in my mind is it's not a cinematic, but um, but yeah, more once you 
adjust it a little, it can really be amazing. Um, nice. So yeah, those are the main main cameras I I use. Do Do you ever have any ambition to move into directing, or do you prefer with, to stick with cinematography? No, I do. I I. It's not that I would want to just transition out of DPing. Um, DPing is probably what I love the most. But uh, there are a few, especially unscripted stuff. I really like um, kind of figuring stuff out on in the moment. And I've shot these little documentary mini docs really for Spotify where you get a day with the, an artist and you do a certain activity. And, um, I like that. And I like, in general, interviews and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I'd like to continue um, on that path and and continue shooting for the people that I love working with. And then kind of on the side, maybe 20% of my time will be um, invested in, in uh, yeah, the directing stuff, but nice. which is something that I think it's getting so much easier, you know, and again, and, and technology has been uh, demystified, de you know, so much to a degree that like a lot of my friends who I shoot for are being asked, especially on the com commercial end, like, everybody wants the director to be shooting, you know, which is good for me because it affords me certain opportunities, but I think it's a bit, um, it's a lot to ask, you know, for all, of all these directors that maybe they were more script driven or more of an actor's director uh, to, to all of a sudden understand cameras and lighting and stuff. It's really hard, but um, nice. so yeah, I'd, I'd hopefully, as the future uh, continues, we'll I'll, I'll get to yeah keep shooting, DPing for people, and then directing once in a while. Excellent. We definitely look forward to seeing your work, including these uh, films that that you recently did. And which I guess leads me to ask: um, Are you on social media? Where could people sort of follow along? Yeah, I'm the worst with social media. It's like my biggest enemy. I just um so I'm, but I I am. And it's understandable because you're busy doing important things <laughs> yeah and yeah i don't know what it is i just have a hard hard time with it i'm not i don't think i've posted anything on instagram for a while but i'm gonna start again because i have to because i've been told it's just i absolutely have to so uh but so yeah it's my name and last name um so alonso homes a-l-o-n-s-o-h-o-m-s cool. on instagram i awesome. think it's the one i'm gonna keep nice yeah thank you for that well thank you alonso we Really appreciate you being on the Globe Screen podcast. Thank you so, so much for having for me. It was it was a lot of fun. Great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll bump into each other again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Alonzo. Have a good one. Bye-bye.